This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Hey, 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 welcome, welcome, welcome. How are we guys this morning? My name is Arnaldo, excuse me about that. Uh, We will use those. Uh, That's not just a prop. Uh, My name is Arnaldo. I am part of the Peakers Gospel Community, uh, which I have the pleasure of leading with my wife, and I just want to extend a warm welcome uh, to you guys, especially if this is your first time here. Uh, We love that you're here with us, and um, we love that you're here and you get to be here during uh, what has been so far a really impactful uh, sermon series for us. We're going through the first half of the book of Romans, uh, which we've been waiting to do for five years. And so this is uh, really exciting for us to do. Uh, There's a lot to cover. Uh, I'm going to be going through the whole of chapter 2 and up to verse 20 in chapter 3. And so I just want to say that I cannot cover everything that I want to cover, but I pray that God will help me to remember the things that are going to be helpful for you uh, and forget the things that are not going to be helpful. And so towards that end, uh, I would love for you to join me in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you've given us just enough energy and enough health to be here. There are people here from around the globe, from different nations, different tongues, different peoples. And so I pray that even as this is a small, uh, you know, microcosm, a small picture of what heaven will be like, we pray that uh, it will be here as it is in heaven, that you're your word and your glory and your beauty this morning will be seen clearly. So we pray against the enemy. We pray against his blinding effects. We pray that he will, uh, Lord, stay and that you will go forward and that your word will convict and comfort and bring hope and healing to this broken world. And so we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Welcome again. Now, I want to draw your attention over here, and I want us to imagine that as I preach today, I'm going to be preaching to people who are going to be sitting on these stools. And this is our first stool, which represents what Matt preached yesterday from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and as he called them, the rebels. Or as uh, John Stott calls them, uh, depraved Gentiles. And this stool here, I'll be preaching to these people here today. And those are going to be uh, the critical moralizing hypocrites that we find in the beginning of chapter 2. And then here, we're going to find that these are the religious, self-righteous Jews that Paul continues to preach through towards the end of chapter 2. And I don't know where you are today, but we all sit somewhere along this spectrum. And last week, Matt kicked us off with with this chair. And unless we get a recap, and maybe you weren't here, you weren't able to catch the podcast, but unless we catch a recap of what is happening here, we're going to sort of miss what Paul is doing here. Because as Paul opens up our text for today, he starts with the word, therefore, and I don't want to get cheesy, but I'm going to get cheesy. And what they teach you is uh, when, when, when you become a good reader of Scripture, you, you question the text. You say, what, what does this word mean? What, what is this there? And I remember as a, as a Bible college student, uh, this word therefore, right? So, you know, these professors, they think they're cool. And so they'll say things like, what is the therefore, therefore? And so what is the therefore, therefore? And unless we understand what the therefore is therefore, some of this is going to be lost on us. 
And so as a quick recap, what, 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 uh, uh, what uh, Matt preached to us last week uh, was from Romans 1, 18 to 32. And basically what Paul was doing is that he was arraigning, he was bringing the Gentile depraved world to account, what he called rebels. And fundamentally, what rebels have done, what the depraved Gentile world, those who don't know God, those who don't have the law, what they've done essentially is that they have traded the maker for the things that are made. They have traded the creator for the creation. There is this great exchange that is happening in the, in, in the first book, in the first chapter of Romans that says, because we have suppressed the truth, because we have worshipped the things that were created instead of the, 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 the person who created those things, we suppress the truth, and verse 28 says that God have, you know, gave us over to a debased mind. And from that debased mind issues a broken life and broken practices. Practices that defame the world. Practices that vandalize the world. And Paul talks about some of these practices as uh, practicing homosexuality. That sin has affected not only our minds, our bodies, our sexualities, everything that we are, sin has touched. And he goes on in verse 28 of chapter 1 saying this, they were filled, speaking of the person sitting in this chair, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to them. And what I want you to imagine as a person sitting here who's hearing these words spoken to them about them, that the guys sitting on these seats are like, preach, Paul. Amen. I get behind that. Until chapter 2. And Paul turns on them. He turns to the critical, moralizing Hypocrites. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 1. Follow with me. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls, rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself? Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the richness of his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard heart and impenitent, uh, your, your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. For yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
And he goes on up until verse 11 speaking to these critical, moralizing hypocrites. And the issue here is not judging. And so often, you know, the, the, the most famous uh, and memorized text, John 3.16, has been replaced by Matthew 7.1. Do not judge. And so for a lot of us in our, in our collective consciousness, we think judging is completely off the table. We should not judge. But Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6 talking about how we will judge the church and how we will even, as believers, judge angels. And so judgment is not the issue here. What's at stake here is hypocrisy. Let me, let me read that to you again. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you practice the very same things. Last week, we took, uh, we took the boys, we took the family out to, uh, to dinner. And um, uh, we went to a place because they had halloumi chips. Now, I don't know how you, what, what your hierarchy of, of chips are, but we place sort of halloumi chips up here and regular chips sort of like down here, right? So you can imagine now, for, for the sake of the story, um, Anthony, my eldest, my 10-year-old, he's going to re- be the rebel. He's going to be that depraved Gentile. And Jonathan, my six-year-old, he's the critical moralizing Hypocrite. And so we're eating. I'm, in, yeah, I'm enjoying this thing, right? And, uh, and Johnny starts stealing my halloumi chips. Now, I'm his dad. I love him. I'm not going to give him a stone if he asks me for bread. And so I let him, I let him sort of steal my stuff. And he's, he's so giddy. He thinks he's getting away with it. And then at the corner of his eye, he sees his brother, Anthony, the rebel, stealing his regular chips. And he goes irate. And now, he's not as eloquent, but he said things like, this is a travesty, this is a miscarriage of justice, is there a God even that exists? I mean, he went off at Anthony, and I sort of stared at him, and I preached a sermon to him, I said, oh, 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 you little critical, moralizing hypocrite. <laughs> Do you not just see what you, you've, been, you've been doing? You're judging your brother, like you're ready to kill this kid, because he stole a couple chips, but you've been stealing from me a greater thing. Right? All along. <laughs> kind of shut them down, right? But that's the picture here. The picture here is that there are these people, a mix of probably Jews and sort of highbrow moralistic pagans, who were looking at these rebels and were hearing these words spoken to them and were just saying, Yes, Paul, preach, until Paul turns on them. And says, oh, really? Oh, really? They believed that they, their morality, their high moral standing and attitudes would save them from the wrath that is to come. And there are many people in this room just like that. They were looking at the rebels and saying, we're, we're not like them. And therefore, I will be saved from the wrath of God. And Paul puts puts a stop to them. And he continues in verse 12, saying these words. For all who have sinned without the law, that's that's the the, the moralizing uh, uh, hypocrites, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, 
but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. What is Paul talking about here? And this is what he's doing in a nutshell. He's saying that at the judgment, and if you are unaware of this, maybe this is the the first time you're hearing this, each and every single one of us will be held to account by God one day. We will all be judged. And at that point, he says, see, God is fair. God is not going to judge you by what you do not know. God is not going to judge you by the Ten Commandments if you do not know them. And that may be surprising to you. But God will judge you because he has put his moral code in your heart. And each and every one of us has said this sentence. You should do this. Or you shouldn't do this. You ought to do this. And as we do that, we are building a moral code. We're building our own law. And one day we will be judged by it. Martin Lloyd-Jones Uh, The famous doctor turned preacher at the middle of the 20th century. He he had this beautiful illustration where he says, From the day of your birth, you have something of an invisible recorder wrapped around your neck. You don't see it. You don't know it's there. But you have it from the day of your birth all the way to the day of your death. That whole dash that's going to be on your tombstone from the year to year, you will have this invisible recorder. And it will record every single time you told someone you ought to do this. You should have been this way. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if many of you have kids. I have kids. I'm married. I've been married 12 years. There's so many times that I have told Catherine, you ought to do this. Or the kids, you should have done this. Or you shouldn't have done that. And God says, if you don't know the law, I'm not going to judge you by you don't know. But I will judge you by that recorder on your neck that says, you ought to do this. How many times have you broken your oughts or your shoulds or your shouldn'ts? How many times have you cursed someone out for cutting you off? And how many times have then you've cut people off? Something as simple as that. God will not judge you by what you do not know. And some people think, well, then that's, I'm, I'm free to go. But God says he will judge you by what you do know, by the code, by the morality that he's put the law that he's placed in your heart. Ecclesiastes says that he has placed eternity in our hearts, this desire. And with that comes this innate knowing that chapter one says we suppress. We suppress the truth of God. We suppress who he is. We suppress his goodness. And we live against the grain of the universe. It's almost like it's almost like you know, you you you, you go to BP, you go to the gas station, you put sugar in your tank and think. That'll drive. We live against the way we have been designed. We live against the way that God has prescribed us to live for our good, our flourishing, and his glory. But he will not judge you for what you do not know. He will judge you by the law that you yourself have created with every ought, shouldn't, should, and measuring you up against yourself. And we know every single one of us will be stopped on that day. And he goes on to verse 16. I want to I skip there. And he says, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by... Uh, he judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You know, Matthew 10, Jesus is talking about judgment again. And if you didn't know, Jesus talks more about hell and judgment than he does about money, sex, anything else. 
And in Matthew 10, he says these words, that you, every single word, every syllable that comes flowing out of your mouth, you will be held account for. Did you know that? No one here is an excuse. No, no one here is uh, exempt from that. Every single syllable that has come out of my mouth. And yet here, Paul says, the secrets of men will be judged. I would venture to say, I know some of you personally, I'd love to, to know more of you. But even if I don't, that if on this screen behind me, your thoughts, your secrets from the last 24 to 72 hours were displayed here for all of us to see, you would not show your face here next week. Neither would I. Even the secrets of men will be judged. Not just the words that we speak, the syllables, but even our inmost secrets will be judged on the day of judgment. And so, here we have these rebels who are running from God in their sin. That is not going to save them from the wrath to come. In fact, that is why, in large measure, the wrath of God is coming. Here, we have people who, because of their morality, because they think they're better than other people because they're hypocrites and still do those very same things, that will not save them from the wrath of God that is to come. And so what? So here what we're going to find then are self-righteous Jews. Surely if running from God will not help, surely if morality cannot help me, surely being a part of the people, covenant people of God, that surely will help. And Paul turns to them from verse 17 and he says this, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, all beautiful, beautiful, beautiful things because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, oh, I love this, having the law, in the law, the embodiment of truth and knowledge. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, right, those, those, those things the pagans bow down to, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by what? By breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so, what Paul's doing here, he's saying, listen, having the law, that's good. He goes on to talk about circumcision, this, this marker of the people of God in the Old Testament that said, I am a part of the people of God. This is a covenant marker. This says that I am a part of them. And what people were doing is that they were hiding behind those outward markers without the inward realities. And we can do just the same. We can say, I am a part of Anchor Church. I have been baptized. I take the Lord's Supper. I'm a part of my GC. I'm even in a triplet. Surely that will save me from the wrath of God. Surely these outward markers 
will save me from the wrath that is to come. And Paul says, no. We did a, a, a series in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and what, the, what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount was he was saying, he wasn't throwing away these outward markers. What he was saying is that these are, they mean nothing. They are rubbish unless they are attached to this inner reality that they represent. And so the Sermon on the Mount and what Paul is doing here, he's not saying, do not pray, do not fast, do not give. What he's saying is those things need to happen inside as well. There is where our outer selves and our inner selves have integrity, and we're whole persons. And so having the law, while it's good, Paul will talk about that, will not save you. Knowing something will not save you. Being a part of a community will not save you. These outward markers, most which are good, will not save you from the wrath that is to come. And so running from God in your rebellion, in your sin, marked by the base mind, that's not going to save you from the wrath that is to come. Having a high moral standard, voting the right way, thinking the right things, judging others for the very same things that you do, that is not going to save you. And then religion, outward works, outward religion will not save you. What are we going to do? I'm not, sitting, I'm not standing up here trying to philosophize to you. This is our predicament. This is the predicament of the world. What are we going to do? Where does that leave us? And we can imagine everyone sitting on these stools flabbergasted at an end. What are we going to do? What are you going to do? when you feel the weight of the brokenness of the world and how you have been complicit in that, what for us is left? And there was a question that was thrown to Paul. Okay, that's fine. Uh, But then what's the point of what God has done in the Old Testament? What's the point? And in verses 1 to 8 in chapter 3, what he's doing is that there were people saying, okay, well, what you're saying, Paul, is that we have sinned, we have been unfaithful. And because of our unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness, his grace has been magnified. Meaning, let me make it plain, is that because we sin and God forgives, therefore, that makes him look glorious. And so we should sin all the more to make him look more glorious. And Paul, in, 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 the, in the loudest terms possible, in, in verse 4 in chapter 3, says, By no means, over my dead body, he says. Because our, God's faithfulness to us, even in our brokenness, even in our sin, does not fuel our disobedience. Because if we read from before, what he says is that God's grace, God's patience should lead to repentance. And so God's faithfulness in the face of our faithlessness fuels loving obedience. And then he goes on from, chapter, uh, from verse 9. Let me read that to you again as Hope read to us from verse 9. He, he, he basically, I mean, what he's doing, he's rounding this all up. He's rounding us all up. And he says this about us. He says this about you. He says this about me. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Are the people of God any better off because they have these things? 
because they have these uh, circumcision and the law, these outward markers? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's everybody in the world. And it is written, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one here is an exception. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Excuse me. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. This picture of rot and decay that comes out of our mouths. And Jesus is very clear. Luke 6.45 says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He goes on. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift. They run towards violence, are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, now we know. That whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Do you feel that? Do you feel the weight? That compounds. Nothing is going to save us. What are we going to do about this? I want to read to you a story, a picture. And there are going to be things in there that are going to make you feel uncomfortable. And I want us to feel the weight the vileness of the sin that we've inherited and that we participate in. Because until we realize the depth of our depravity, the scope of it, the fact that while we may not be as bad as we could be, every single part of us has been touched by sin. Every single facet of who we are, our intellect, our feelings, our minds, our sexuality, our emotions, everything has been tainted by sin, by rebellion, by either running away from God or trying to use God to run away from God. We use him. We say, well, well, I'm a part of the people of God. I serve. I do these things. And therefore, he owes me. He can't pour out his wrath on me. He's in my debt. He owes me. I'm a good person. And until we realize the, the I, 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 he can't even grasp words, the vileness of our depravity, then we can't grasp the beauty of the cross. We cannot grasp the beauty of grace of what Jesus had to go through, hell on the cross, to save us. And so you will have to indulge me. Begins like this. These pains of the physical crucifixion 
are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but around his heart. He, Jesus, feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. The living excrement from our souls. The apple of the father's eye turns brown with rot. His father. He must face his father like this. And of Jesus, this is said. And to Jesus. Son of man. Why have you behaved so? You have cheated Lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, and lied. You have cursed, you have robbed, you have overspent, you have overeaten, you have fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties that you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever ignored the poor like you? So played the coward, so belittled my name. Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp. Buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded enslaved, and relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything that is on you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. And the father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. And the father watches as his heart's treasure, his mirror image of himself sinks down into raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored wrath against humankind from every century past and every century forward explodes in a single direction. I just want you to feel the depth and the vileness of what Jesus had to go through because the wrath of God is coming. I don't know if you know this again. I don't know if this is the first time you're hearing this, but the wrath of God is coming. And until we grasp this, until we allow this truth to wrestle us to the ground and hold us down and push us to view the beauty of the cross, of what Jesus had to go through to set us free, from sin, from the effects of sin, from the wrath of God to come because of sin. There will be a judgment one day. 
This is, this is, this, listen, I understand this may be completely new to you. There is going to be a judgment one day where each and every single one of us, the scriptures teach over and over and over again, that each and every single one of us will stand before the great throne of the king and will have to give an account. And the question is, at that point, will Jesus have paid for your sin or will you spend an eternity paying for it? yourself. There will be two things that will be said on that day as you face the king. He will, you will either say to the king, your will be done. I submit to you. And he will gladly, and the angels will roar as you enter into the new heavens and the new earth with joy and gladness. Or he will say to you, your will be done. And you will continually want to be apart from him. And the wrath of God is coming. And is already being revealed. As God continually gives people over to a debased mind. And until we see the vileness of sin, we cannot appreciate the beauty and the worth and the magnitude of the cross. There are people dying in this world. And until we grasp this reality, we cannot, all the tools we may have in our, in our, in our toolbox of mission, unless we grasp the reality that judgment is coming, then the cross loses its power for us. And so I want to invite you. Maybe you don't know Jesus here today. Maybe this is the first time you've realized this truth. I want to invite you to repent. And repentance is this. It's turning away from yourself. It's turning away from the world. It's saying, I will not live according to the script of the world. And I will live according to this beautiful script of God that says, even though we are deserving of wrath, Jesus, the perfect son of God, Receive the wrath in my place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Christ became sin and that we became the righteousness of God. And so I'm not just talking about forgiveness here. I'm not just talking about a clean slate. I'm not just talking about, okay, you're free to go. I'm talking about grace. Forgiveness says go. Grace says come. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, Paul will go on to say later on that we are with him and that we have died with him and that we are raised with him. God, I I don't know if you believe this, but you should want to believe this. That the God-man, Jesus Christ, bore the penalty of everything that is wrong and broken in us so that we can be received as beautiful sons and daughters by the King. And so I invite you to stand. I invite you to sing. We're going to share now a meal. Maybe you, you may know it as a Lord's Supper. You may know it as, as the Eucharist, a Thanksgiving meal or, or, or a, a communion. And what that means, what that signifies is that as we take the bread and our gospel community leaders will guide you in this, they will speak beautiful words over you. 
That as we share this meal, what we are saying is that we are participating in that act. We are participating in the broken body of God in the flesh. And as we take the bread, that represents God's in Jesus, his body broken for us, for our sin and our rebellion and our self-righteousness. And as we drink of the common cup, and there are some other options there, as we drink the wine or the juice, that says I'm drinking of his blood. I'm drinking this forgiveness. I'm drinking his grace. I'm participating in the people of God. And so I invite you to do that during the first song. I invite you to come up, to stand, sing, cry, shout, repent, give thanks to God for the grace of the cross. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Oh, your grace, Jesus, your grace. We thank you for who you are for us in Christ. We thank you that even at some point when wrath was on us, you have diverted that onto the cross in one single direction and moment. And that we no longer have to bear the guilt and the shame. And you have cleansed us. That the blood means cleansing. There are so many people in this world who need it. We need it. And so Lord, do a work. May you increase, may we decrease. May you glorify your name, Jesus. Make yourself beautiful by the Spirit, even now. Draw people now, I pray. That scales will fall from their eyes. That, Holy Spirit, you will blow new life. And that dead bones will rise. And that clean water will be poured over them. And that they will be born of the Spirit, not of the flesh. And we, we claim, Lord, that even today we will live and not die. We will choose life and not death. Help us now, we pray, in your wonderful, glorious, holy, beautiful, gracious name, Jesus.